Well, good morning. On this holiday weekend, good to see all of you. I know we have many, many of our folks who were away. They took off for the holiday and are not with us, but hopefully they'll be back in a week or two to join us again. But we're glad you're here. And on Sunday morning, we are doing a series through the book of James. And so today we are in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 of the book of James. And the book of James is about tests of living faith, that our faith is going to be tested throughout our life, our, our convictions about who God is and what we believe as a Christian. They will be tested, James says. And the first test that we saw several weeks ago when we first started this series was that our faith is going to be tested when trials come into our life. And then a couple weeks ago, we saw that our faith would be tested by our response to the word of God, to the voice of God, to the revelation of God. And then last week, we uh, saw that our faith is tested in response to the law of love and to the law of mercy that we just sang about this morning. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that faith is tested by its fruit, Faith will be tested by its fruit. If there are sort of two key verses in this passage, to me they would be verse 17 and verse 24. Verse 17, so then faith, if it does not have works, is dead being alone. And then verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now, James is not contradicting, obviously, the teaching of Scripture that we are saved alone by faith through God's grace. It's not of works. James is not teaching here works salvation. What James is simply teaching is what the Scriptures teach, and that is that genuine faith, Real faith will elicit itself, will express itself in works. That there will be tangible evidence of the God who lives within us and in whom we say we have a relationship. In fact, Paul talks about this to the Ephesians. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works, you see. So good works has always been sort of the test, if you will, of legitimate faith. That's all that James is saying here, is that our faith is going to be tested by its fruit. So you'll notice in verse 1, or verse 14, the first verse of this passage we're going to look at this morning, that James starts out by saying, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith and yet doesn't have works? Can this kind of faith save him? In other words, is this saving faith? Is this faith genuine and real? And obviously he's going to show us throughout this passage the answer is no. That faith without works is not genuine saving faith. That faith without works is not real 
It's not the real deal, which then reminds us that there can be a spurious faith. There can be a, an empty faith. There can be a worthless faith. There can be a misplaced faith that is not sincere and that is not genuine. That's why in verse 14, James says, if someone claims to have faith, because the Bible needs to remind us of something. We can claim anything. We can profess anything. And down through history, many, many human beings have professed or claimed that they had a relationship with God, that they had a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible talks about this. They profess that they know God, but Paul said, in works, or in this case, in lacking works, they deny him. Jesus himself even said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that. That's pretty sobering. Not everyone who claims to know me is going to enter into heaven. Only the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. Again, Jesus is saying, real faith, sincere, genuine, biblical faith is going to show itself. It's going to be manifested. And it's going to be manifested in works. There's going to be some kind of tangible, visible evidence and expression of real faith. That's why James goes on to say, if a brother or sister, verse 15, is in need of clothing or food, they're, they're hungry or, or they don't have enough clothes, and we come across a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow Christian who's in definite need, and we have the ability to meet that need, but we simply say to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, is that really meeting a need? And then James goes on to say, what good is it? The same word that he uses up in verse 14 about what good is it? In other words, another part of our faith here is not to just make sure that our faith in Christ is the real deal, that we are sincere and genuine in our convictions about who God is and who we believe him to be, but that real faith is going to not only give us a strength and stability and security in our life, but real faith is going to benefit and profit those around us. That's what the word good means. In other words, if you and I have good faith, we have biblical faith, it's going to benefit and profit others because God is going to use us and our faith in him in order to bless those around us in very tangible ways. And notice something here. James says it doesn't have to be parting seas and moving mountains. It can be just giving someone a piece of clothing giving someone a little food, or even as Jesus says, giving someone who's the least of these a cup of cold water in my name, that's an act of faith. Amen. 
so many times we want to look at the, the big things, again, the, the parting of seas and the moving of mountains, as if that's a demonstration of faith and, and healings and all these major things, and I'm not discounting those. That's awesome. But we've got to come down that remind ourselves that our faith is very practical, very personal, very pragmatic, if you will, where James is saying, you and I should have a special looking out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we should look out for everyone, but especially a fellow Christian. If there's a need there and we can meet that need, then James says by doing it, even something very small like giving them a piece of clothing or a meal, that's a demonstration of our faith. Why? Because it's acting. It's expressing. It's expressing sort of the love and the mercy that we talked about last week that James just continues into, which is why then James says in verse 17, so then faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead being by itself, you see. God never meant for genuine faith just to sit there, just to sort of percolate in our life and not go anywhere. In fact, then on into verse 18, James says this. He says, someone may say, well, you have faith and I have works. In other words, sort of like with spiritual gifts. Like, well, you have the gift of works and I have the gift of faith and and they're sort of, you know, mutually exclusive and they're sort of separated. And James goes, no, 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 no. Faith and works are not separated in God's mind. In fact, they are inseparable from God's perspective, which is why James goes on to say, you show me your faith without works, I will show you my faith. How? By my works. I will express my faith by my works. I will demonstrate my faith by my works. I will make manifest my faith by my works. Why? Because faith fundamentally is an invisible principle. See, again, you and I can claim faith, but faith is something that, that you and I and only God alone knows whether we really have it in here. So James says the only way to make that known to those around us is to express it, to demonstrate it, to get what's on the inside outside, you see. James is saying here, I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying this, you and I as Christians need to wear our faith every day. We need to put it on like a piece of clothing so that not only again, it strengthens us, gives us a security and stability in our life, but so that others can see it. So not only does faith benefit and profit those around us. But faith is obviously here, according to James, a way to witness to others. It's a way to show others that we truly do believe in God, that we have convictions about him and what he has said, that we have confidence in him, and that we can wear that faith every day. We can wear that confidence every day. That's why the Bible talk so much to us as Christians about things like don't be afraid and, and don't go around so fearful in life because 
when you and I go around being afraid of everything, we're not manifesting our confidence in God. We're allowing circumstances of life and worldly things to get the better of us. And James would say, that's not wearing your faith. That's wearing your fear, but not your faith, you see. James is telling us, I will show you my faith by my works. So not only is James teaching us here, first of all, that there's an inseparable link between faith and works, because faith without works is dead. He's telling us anyone can claim to have faith, but only those who truly live it out, who truly manifest the works that are fueled by faith, are really born-again Christians who have a home in heaven because many human beings down through history will claim to have that. But just as Jesus says, not everyone who claims a profession of faith truly is a Christian. And so I, I just want to stop here too at this moment and say that, that one of my concerns as a pastor of a church has always been that there's not somebody sitting in my congregation, if you will, amongst my sheep who somehow... You have this false assumption that you're saved simply because you claim it, you profess it, but there's never been a change in your life. There's never any really good works that are evidencing and, and manifesting that there really is that principle of faith in there. And then James tells us it's got a profit, it's got a benefit. And we've got to wear it so that we can be a witness to the faith and to the God that we say we know and that we believe. And then James gets to a real key verse here. He says to his audience, again, who may be sort of bringing up some objections to James' train of thought here. He says, you believe that God is one. Very famous sort of Jewish Old Testament theological principle. The Lord our God is one. We believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But that our God is one God, James says. You believe that God is one. Well and good. In other words, basically, you get an A on that pop quiz. You, you, that's right. You answered correctly. But then notice what James goes on to say. Even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. Literally, it means that even the demonic beings break out in a cold sweat because they know who God really is. And they understand by rejecting Christ they know what their ultimate destiny is going to be. And yet, it doesn't make a difference. Why? Here's James's point, and this is something that we all as Christians, we really need to get. Their acknowledgement of God is not enough. They know God. They know about God. And their assent to all of these facts about God and theology about God is right. Now think about that. In a sense, what James is saying is, 
we could technically bring a demon, an evil spirit in and have them teach theology and their theology would be right. They understand maybe even more than most Christians about God. They can tell us about God. They can tell us about the scriptures. They know these things, but their acknowledgement and their assent is without affection or adoration of God. Amen. And James is saying, be careful. <clears throat> be very careful, Christian, because even we, especially in churches like ours that really value the teaching of God's word, we can go halfway, in a sense, in our faith. We can make sure that we cross all our T's and dot our I's and we're filling our churches with people that can pass Bible quizzes and know the address of Bible verses and they know about God and, and they have an understanding of God and if you ask them theological questions, they can have all the right answers, right? But what about our affection and our adoration for God? See, that's something that demons don't have and that a true Christian will have. And that's why, can I tell you, at our church, it's very important to me that we be a church not only of the word, but a church of worship. And a church where worship and the word are not competing with each other, but where they're complementing each other and working together so that the more we worship God, we are actually driven to his word because we want to know more of who he is. And the more we know about him and his word, the more than we are driven to worship him because worship, unlike so many other things, is really where we express our affection and our adoration of God. It's one of the reasons why, again, I encourage us to not be a church where, you know, we're out that many people are out there in the lobby while worship is going on here thinking that as long as I'm in for the message, I'm good. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to be like one of those Christians that you, you got all the right answers and you got your Bible down, but are you developing a heart for God? Do you love the Lord? Because I would rather be a pastor of a church filled with people who truly have a heart and love for God than simply those who can give me all the right theological answers because the demons can do that too. Amen. Now let me say, I'm not saying that we should discount truth and the teaching of truth. Our churches should not be filled with a bunch of heretics either. We should know the truth. But folks, what James is saying is we've got to, in our faith walk, go beyond just simply filling our head with a bunch of correct facts about God and about the Bible. There's got to become a point where our heart is gripped by God, where our heart is captivated by God, where we become not only a person of the word, but a person who falls down before God in worship of him out of our affection and out of our adoration because that's one thing the demon don't have. They've got the right answers, but they have no heart for God. Amen. And that's why James is saying, hey, you believe God is one? That's good. The demons can do that. What about our heart? What about our heart? 
Do we really love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength? And see, if we do, then we're going to be a group of people who love worship and who want to express our our affection and our adoration and our blessing of God and all of that out of our worship. I mean, yeah, we can do it in the Word too. But worship is one of those very tangible, and that's why worship is going to be something that we do throughout eternity in heaven because it's going to be an eternal way of expressing our faith, our love of God before the universe. So then James says, sort of takes a little bit of a turn then in verse 20. He says, so you foolish fellow, he says, you want evidence, you want some examples that faith without works is useless, worthless. He said, let me give you two examples from the Old Testament scriptures, which these folks would have been familiar with. The first is pretty obvious, Abraham. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac upon the altar? James is simply saying, would this man have taken his son, his only son, the son of promise, and placed him on an altar and gotten ready to drive a knife through his heart and take his life as a sacrifice to God if he really did not believe that God could raise him from the dead or that somehow God would provide? No, he would have never done that. The only thing that brought Abraham to that point of acting upon his faith was his conviction of who God was and his confidence in the promises of God. Otherwise, he would have never walked Isaac up that hill and laid out that altar and gotten ready to sacrifice him before God. It was because he believed God, but his faith was moved to action. He was expressing who he knew God to be out of sacrificing or the willingness to sacrifice his son. James is simply saying, Abraham just just didn't sit around going, yes, I'm the father of faith and I'm the father of the faithful and I'm, I'm a man of faith. He did something with that. It didn't just sit there. And then I love verse 22. It's a great verse that teaches us, again, some dynamics about faith. First of all, he says that Abraham's faith was actually working with his works. I love that. It it means that, again, from God's perspective, faith and works cannot be separated. They are inseparable. And that our faith actually partners with our works. Or another way to look at it is our faith is what fuels or inspires our works. They work together, if you will. They're in this together. They complement each other like the word and worship should. So does faith and works. They don't compete with each other. They complement each other and they go together. And then he goes on to say this, and Abraham's faith was actually perfected by his works. That's important. Here, the word perfected is a word that speaks about purpose, uh, about goal, the goal of something, okay? So, So what James is saying here is, is that when you and I demonstrate or express our faith, we are 
showing the purpose or the goal that God always had for our faith, which is works. That our faith was never to lie dormant and not do anything or go anywhere. It was always to be expressed. It was always to be manifested. It was always to go outward from within, you see. In other words, what James is saying very succinctly in verse 22 by our faith being perfected by our works is this. God's purpose in giving us faith is always to move us to action. God's purpose in giving us faith is to move us to action. What does God want to do then with you and with me right now? What, what action steps or action step does God want me to take to demonstrate my faith in him? And at every turn of our Christian life, at every season, throughout every season of our life, God is going to sort of say, here, I'm giving you faith, but not just to sit there. I'm giving you faith now to do something with it. What are you going to do with that faith? Because like a muscle, our faith will atrophy and become weaker if we don't use it. Faith has got to continually be exercised in order to grow strong and be strengthened and be sustained. And so many Christians do not exercise their faith to the level where it grows strong, but where it continually atrophies and gets weaker. But again, that's not God's purpose, according to James, for giving us faith. The purpose of God's faith is always to move us to some kind of action. In fact, that's why if you read the great chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, sort of what some call the hall of fame of faith, where God literally points out people uh, and their faith, the, there's a recurring phrase in Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith Moses, by faith Esther, by faith David, on and on, by faith. By faith what? By faith they did something. It wasn't just they sat there and they came to church and they left and nothing ever really was done. They never really were moved to action. Their life never really demonstrated anything. It was just sort of there. No, that's not faith. That's not genuine, sincere faith. You see, when you and I truly have faith operating within us, we won't be able to sit still. We won't be able to keep our arms from being raised. We won't be able to stop worshiping and stop praising and stop singing and stop going because even in the Great Commission, Jesus says, as you are going, in his mind, we always should be going, being his representatives everywhere we go to everybody we see. So in other words, every day, is a day of ministry for us. No matter what we're doing, going to work, going to school, going to the grocery store, whatever it is, wherever we go, we are his representative. And as we are going, we are to be representatives of his faith, wearing our faith everywhere we go to everyone we see. That's always been the purpose of faith. 
That's why then James goes on to say, so you see, just as the scriptures say, verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's why he says, James, or James says about Abraham that Abraham was called the friend of God. Do you know that specifically in the Bible, Abraham is the only person ever called the friend of God, even though obviously even you and I are God's friends through Jesus Christ. But Abraham's the only one that specifically pointed out as the friend of God. What is a friend? Someone who's close, intimate. We've sung about that this morning. Someone in whom we have a bond, there's loyalty there, and someone that we have great affection for. And think about it. God says, I want you all as my friends. Not just as my children, not just as my servants, but just like Abraham, I want you as my friends. And how do we become God's friend? By faith, by responding to him and expressing our faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For we who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. So then, in verse 24, James says, so then we learn that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, he's not contradicting the fact that we work for our salvation. He's simply saying genuine faith, sincere faith in God will have works as its evidence. Jesus even said, by their fruit, you will know them. Faith is tested by its fruit. Anyone can claim to have a relationship with God. Any Christian can claim to have a growing relationship with God. Oh, I'm, I'm growing, I'm maturing. I'm... James says, show me, show me. See, James was actually from Missouri, right? The show me state. I love that where James says, show me your faith without works. I, I want to see that. Because James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Amen. Show me. Because we all as Christians, we can talk the talk pretty good. And we can sit around and do a lot of talking. But James was not one that was just about talking. James was about doing. And so was God. God says there's a time to talk. There's a time to teach. But there's a time to get up and do something with our faith. Demonstrate it. Manifest it. And then the next example that James gives would blow most people away. Out of all the people that James could have put before us as an example of faith, he chose Rahab the prostitute. And he says, oh, by the way, Rahab the prostitute, she was a woman of faith when she welcomed the spies from Israel and then she sent them out another way, protecting their life. Why would James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Choose Rahab, I think, for a couple reasons. One, to remind all of us, if God 
commends Rahab, the prostitute's faith, and that means I'm good too, right? <laughs> that, that any of us can demonstrate and show faith if a Gentile, you know, it's not just the Jewish father of the nation, Abraham. It can be a Gentile prostitute. And I love the fact that James is also reminding us here that when she did that, Everything about her past was wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ who would come one day and die for her on that cross too. But James is basically saying, look, I don't care what your past is. I don't care how checkered it is. I don't care how sinful it is. God commended and recognized Rahab's faith. Then God can recognize and commend anybody's faith, that anybody can demonstrate faith, no matter how sinful or what our background is. God will accept us through Christ. But I think James is also using Rahab for this reason. He says, do you realize, and again, I'm not being anti-education or anti teaching or anti-truth or anything like that. But do you realize Rahab never went to a theological school? She never went to seminary. She had a very, very small understanding of, of things. In fact, she did not, like all the Israelites who did not go into the promised land through unbelief, she did not have the advantage that they had to actually see the miracles that God did by delivering them out of Egypt. She never saw the Red Sea parted like many of them. She never saw all the, the plagues that God put down on Pharaoh in Egypt. She never saw any of that. All she heard was a report. She never saw anything. And yet, just simply by hearing what God had done, that faith that God gave her was birthed in her and she became a believer, a sincere believer, a genuine believer who put her faith into action. Amen. And James is saying, if Rahab can do it, any of us can do it. None of us have an excuse. You might ha not have the greatest spiritual background or the greatest theological education. Listen, all God's looking for is a heart who's open to him. And the more we respond to God and the revelation he gives us, then we'll make sure that he may we'll make sure we keep growing and moving in the right direction and getting that truth. But hopefully that love of the truth will never replace love for him. Amen. Which is where the demons go off. And that's why then James sort of summarizes it in verse 26 by saying, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. There is no evidence of life. That's why he uses the word dead a couple times in this passage. There's no evidence of life without works. Works is the only way that you and I can take an invisible principle like faith that is only something that dwells inside of us and that others can see and benefit and profit from and that we can witness our confidence and conviction of God to. It's only by getting what's inside, outside does that happen. The purpose of faith is to move us to action. So as a church and as individuals, we need to ask ourselves continually, God then, what are you birthing in me? What are you wanting to bring out in me by the faith that you've given me? What, do I, what should I be doing with this? Because I can't just sit still. That's not an option for genuine, real faith. That's dead faith. That's empty faith. That's worthless faith. That's useless faith. 
God wants to use each of our faiths, if you will, to glorify and magnify him. Now, one thing before we wrap this up this morning, and I think this is very important, so please hang in there with me. It's not quite even 11 o'clock yet, so you guys shouldn't be, like, too weary yet. <laughs> Remember, we, Wednesday night we were in a passage in Acts where Paul spoke all night and went so far into the night that the poor young man fell out of the third-story window and died, and then Paul had to go and resurrect him from the dead. I'm not going to keep you till midnight. Oh, and by the way, then I pointed out in that passage that even after he resurrected the poor young man from, from the dead, he went back to that same room and then he preached till dawn. You have to listen to that message from Wednesday night, though, to get the context. Anyway, here's an important, though, point as well, and James doesn't bring it in at this point, but I felt as I was studying and preparing and meditating on this passage that this is something that God wanted me to bring in and remind you of. And I actually did this on Wednesday too. And that is this. If you and I are going to be people of faith who are always in action, if you will, and working, then we also better listen to the revelation of God and make sure that we are taking one and seven off. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about necessarily keeping the Sabbath, but the principle even on the Sunday, the first day of the week, is that God said, even when he set up creation, one and seven, devote one and seven to me. Devote one in seven days to resting so that the other six you can be more productive. The problem today is, especially in our modern culture and in America is, even as Christians, we don't take one and seven off. We don't take, we, we've lost the ability to even know how to rest, how to relax. What is that? I'm always plugged into my gadgets. I'm always doing something. And what God reminds us of is, I want you to be working. I want you to be active. But in order to sustain that over the long haul, you better learn to relax. You better learn to come apart and rest at times. You better learn to take one in seven so that you can spiritually, emotionally, and physically get rejuvenated so that you can keep going the other six. Otherwise, then, we don't do well in the other six because we've also violated the Sabbath principle of taking one and seven off. So we can't talk about work without also talking about rest. And Jesus modeled this for us, even amongst his own disciples. In the Gospel of Mark, after Jesus sent out his disciples and they were gone for a little while and, and doing some intense ministry, when they got back, Jesus says, now, you and me, we're going to get out of here for a couple days. We're going to come apart, and we're not going to do anything so that you can rest. I love that. The principle God taught me there was come apart or you come apart. <laughs> and we as Christians need to remind our, we think somehow I can just keep going. 
I can just keep trudging away. I can just put my head down and I can just keep going. And eventually what happens with that kind of mentality is we begin to break down physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And the other six days of the week, we begin to tank because we did not follow the clear biblical principle of setting aside one in seven. James has a lot of cool stuff to tell us, doesn't he? And the reason I love the book of James is he has such a unique perspective, I think, on things because he was the Lord's brother. He grew up with Jesus. So the things that are on his heart that I believe the Holy Spirit led him to share with us are things that I think also that he saw in his own brother, Jesus, as he was growing up with him in the home of Joseph and Mary. So I hope you'll come back next week because next week we're going to talk about our faith being tested by our words. James chapter 3. Oh, that won't be challenging or convicting, will it? We've all got this thing down, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. Would you stand with me and let's close in prayer this morning? And as we close in prayer this morning, let's be reminded that we are coming now to another part of our time together with one another and with God where we can express our faith, our adoration, our affection for God in our time of worship of him. This is a time where we, in a sense, can apply the message right away to our hearts and to our minds. And so God, today, I pray that you would take this message on faith, but more importantly, on the fruit of our faith. That, Lord, real, genuine faith has fruit. It has works. It has actions. It has things that profit and benefit others. It has things that witness of your reality in our lives. And that, God, the whole reason you give us faith is to move us to action by faith. We accomplish this. By faith, we achieve this. So God, I'm just going to ask the question to all of us again. From you, what is it that God is moving in us right now? What action, what, what service, what ministry? What does God want to do with our faith right now? What does he want to do with our feet, with our hands, with our mouth, with our eyes, with our ears, with our legs? What tangible way can I express my confidence in my God and my conviction that he is real and that his promises are true? God, whatever you birth in us, you don't want it to sit there inside. You want it to burst forth out of us and come out on the outside. And God, even now, may our affection, may our adoration, may our blessing of you, our gratefulness, our thanksgiving be shouted out and cried out in this place. That God, you are good and you are great and you are worthy of our praise. Help us to manifest our faith, God, right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.